0: Don't miss out on all the extra content I'm sharing. I can't wait to see you over there.
1: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? I feel that only the person experiencing it could ever say what a trauma is to them. However, just just the nourishment and um, even just being held by a mother, just being like as a baby, just held on her chest and just you hear that voice as you're being created and you're being, growing. And then suddenly you don't hear that voice again and you don't feel that body again. And so for me, it took me a long time to admit to myself that that's how I really felt um, because I didn't want my birth mother to feel bad about her choice. I didn't want my parents to think, oh, could we have done something better or different? But yeah, I definitely feel that way.
0: Welcome to How My Parents Raised Me. I'm Dawn Chitty. When we are born, we arrive here as pure and perfect Souls And the direction our life takes from that moment is deeply connected to what our parents bring to our lives. And what our parents bring to our lives is deeply connected to what their parents brought to their lives. And that's the cycle of families. I have always craved connection with real and raw stories to understand what makes you, you. Content warning, if you are triggered by the themes of this podcast, please seek a helpline in your city. Hey beautiful souls, from the moment there is conscious life within the baby growing in the womb, that baby is aware of her mother's voice. She is part of the mother, she is entwined in everything the mother is and does. And when she is born and she is held on the chest of the mother, she knows that she is safe and protected and home. But what about if your mother has already decided that she is unable to care for you? What about if there is another beautiful soul who is desperate to be your mum? And right after your birth, you're taken away from the mother and suddenly you don't hear that voice again. You don't feel that body again. Allie was adopted at birth and she had a very loving adopted mum and dad who gave her a good life. She was loved, cared for. She had all her needs met. But underneath it all, Allie was struggling big time, not really even aware of why. Taking many years to admit to herself that the loss of her birth mother from her life was a loss that she was just not coping with and she never wanted to make her adoptive parents or her birth mother feel that they had made bad choices. Ali is a beautiful soul who is helping women to adopt themselves and is an amazing mentor and guiding light. Her story is one of many years of struggle, but her journey has brought her to a beautiful place of healing. Please join me in hearing... Ali's story. Ali, can you tell us the story of how you came to be adopted as a newborn baby?
1: Yes, it's one of my favorite stories. So it was in the late 80s and my parents um, tried having their own children the natural way and that wasn't working. So they began to look into adoption and they hired a lawyer who advised for them to create this little resume. I like to call it a resume cause it was this cute little picture of them in like cable knit sweaters. And my dad had like a baby Afro and my mom had a perm and it was like hand painted and hand drawn by my aunt. And my mom would paint each one of them. And it would have like a little paragraph about them of why they were looking for a kid um, to adopt a baby. And so they would send that out to, I think it was over 200, um, doctors in i think new mexico and arizona and maybe another state and so they were thinking okay you know hopefully we'll heal we're, we're gonna hear back from one of these doctors um and they didn't hear anything for months and then suddenly out of the blue my aunt so my mom's sister um called my mom and said Hey, there's this woman who um, I know through a friend through the flower shop that she worked at and she is looking to put her baby up for adoption. And I wanted to know if I could give them your resume. And so basically my mom was just like so excited and said, yes. And so then my aunt slipped their resume to my, actually it would have been my biological grandparents who were friends of friends. Um, And then my birth mother uh, saw it and knew my aunt. And so immediately just decided right then, like, Hey, this is the family I want, um, to adopt my baby. And so she went and spoke to her doctor and then the doctor, um, was quite floored, I guess, um, and had actually already set up for me to be adopted into another family. And so then, um, but that obviously changed. And so, yeah, it's, it's, kind of not the typical story of people knowing people and connecting that way a lot of times it's usually just through an agency or something like that so I like that there's more of a personal touch to it um and so my parents were actually there the day I was born at the hospital um and they met me that day and then they took me home the next day and then I flew on my first plane back to Los Angeles when I was two days old. Wow Oh, yeah.
0: yeah, wow, that's a great story. And you're right, I, I've never heard a story that was so personal because it's always usually just through an agency of some sort, isn't it? And that's pretty amazing that your parents were looking for somebody and your auntie just knew somebody that was having a baby. Like, it's just crazy, but such a beautiful story. So when you have your first memories of growing up, What are your first memories of your adoptive mom?
1: My first memories of her, so my mom, I've kind of just, I remember her being pregnant. That's actually one of my first memories. Um, She was pregnant with my brother and she was actually bedridden the last few months. And so I remember her being pregnant on the bed and me wanting to be like, hey mom, let's go do something. And she was just like, no, I'm like, you can lay here with me or you can color with me. Um, so I, that's some of my first memories. So I was probably about three years old, and my brother that's when my brother was born. I was almost three. Um, so I remember those moments with my mom that, yeah, she was bedridden. And then I remember like doing other fun things with her when I was pretty young. Yeah. So
0: your parents went on to have their, their own child. Mm-hmm. Oh,
1: okay. Through in vitro fertilization. One of my favorite stories of my brother is that um, he must have been like in middle school when he would say this. And he said that he has plausible deniability that my parents ever had sex because I'm adopted and he was an in, in vitro baby.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Do you
0: remember feeling loved? What were your feelings around being in that home?
1: Yeah, I, I definitely felt, I definitely felt very loved. I felt very nourished. Um, I always felt that my parents would support me no matter what and even though I knew that I was adopted pretty much since I could understand English like I knew that that wasn't a factor in their love like I knew that they loved me unconditionally. There were times growing up where I felt I felt that I wasn't fully able to voice how I felt around things and around my adoption, which I learned later in life of the reasons why I wasn't so vocal because I wasn't entirely sure about the emotions I was feeling to then voice them. Um, And that's something that developed later. But growing up, I always felt very safe with my family and very cared for and nurtured for and just part of the family.
0: And just going back to that then, so what do you think it was that you, if you could have expressed what you wanted to say as a a small child, knowing that you had been adopted, what do you think it was that you wanted to, that you would have wanted to ask or say if you were able to do that?
1: What comes up the most, um, just based on so much of the inner child healing work that I've done, it's always been that I was so nervous that someone would just knock on the door and say, "Oh, we're gonna pick up Allie now and take her back to her other family." Like that—that that moment um, played through my mind so many times, but I wasn't really able to understand why I felt that way. So it was kind of this like fear of abandonment, fear of rejection, almost um, of like, "Is—is is this something just gonna suddenly change all of a sudden?" And I think that that if I were to have words to voice like hey how can we create a safer container so that I don't feel like I'm suddenly going to be taken away or like anything like that
0: that's um yeah that's interesting because I guess as a a little kid you're being told you know you're adopted and and as a, a small child you don't really understand it just means to you I've come from somewhere else so I guess it would make sense that you would think, oh, well, someone's just going to come and pick me up one day. That's, yeah. Um, I wonder how maybe that's something that many adoptive kids feel, you know, that they're just there for a while or there's, be, there's so much misunderstanding around things when you're a kid that you just can't can't understand because you don't have the capacity. And and I guess adults always think that they're telling you everything you need to know, but um oftentimes I think there's a lot of information missing isn't there
1: yeah definitely and I feel and in a way it's like I was born and then they did take me away from who I was born from so then it's it's kind of it makes sense to me that I then thought oh but I'm safe and happy and loved here the possibility of someone then changing that entire environment um it's completely understandable to me that it's Uh, that it was just in my mind a lot and but at the same time I was told we love you you're adopted we love you you're our child you're our family all of these things but it's like all the verbal cues of the right safe environment but then still like the inside feelings of like am I really safe here like am I gonna stay here like yeah it's a very it's it was an interesting thing to experience and not understand what I was experiencing until many years later, for mm-hmm. sure. Well, yeah.
0: And what about your dad? What do you remember of him growing up? Your adoptive dad.
1: My dad. So I remember him always being in a very nice suit and um, coming home from work, and it was much. It must have been around the same time what my brother was born were some of my favorite early memories of him we would um swim in the pool together a lot and uh we would go walking with the dogs and on hikes and things and i just remember that he would always he would always come home from work and then just like be like veg out with me and like hang out with me um and my parents are both lawyers so they so my friends would always joke like Oh, is your dad in the CIA or something? Because he would like come to all my school activities in this suit and then be answering calls in the middle of my volleyball game or in the middle of whatever it was. Um, so yeah, those are some of my <laughs> earlier memories of my father.
0: very beautiful memory. So, how was your relationship as you grew up then with your parents? Say around eleven or twelve, did you still feel like you belonged in your family or? I mean, as an adoptive child, I guess, you know, genetically, you can be quite different to your family. Does that sort of thing start to show up in, you know, as as you're getting a little bit older?
1: Yeah, and I feel it might have shown up from a very young age, maybe even like five, of thinking like, I don't look as much like my, like, yes, I don't look like them, but I really stood out. Um, I've always had darker skin. And then around 11 years old I actually that's when I hit six feet tall so that was very obvious um, because around that age is also actually most of my life people would always if I was just with my mom who's five four and a half (laughs) um, they would always ask like oh is this your daughter and my mom would say yes but then a lot of the time the next question would be she's so tall where does she get her height from And then my mom would say, oh, her dad is six feet tall. But then when I made it to six feet tall at age 11, it was very obvious that um, I just stood out a lot in my family. Like if you would just be walking down the street and I mean, sure, yes, we are all white. And so we kind of look similar-ish but it was very obvious to me then that I physically was just very different and then that's also what brought up a whole bunch of emotions and questions around okay like what does my birth mom look like what does my birth dad look like and I did I have had a relationship with my birth mom so I saw had seen some pictures of her but it was then that I really had a deeper longing for that physical moment of like physically seeing someone I shared blood with, um, was around age 11, 12. And that's also when my parents said that I was the rudest I ever was. Like I had this like kind of anger phase that lasted about a year. Um, and I really feel like it was kind of like the onset of, uh, a lot of hormones but also like emotions around that longing being more conscious for me um and yeah and you know being 11 years old and hitting six feet tall and none of the boys were anywhere near my height and um you know getting a period in a moon cycle and like that whole phase of life was definitely like an interesting few years for me
0: (laughs) yeah and it's a confusing time for everybody isn't it anyway without having those extra kind of questions and worries and all that sort of stuff that you get when you are adopted into a family I guess and by the time you're 16 you were diagnosed with depression weren't you Mm
1: -hmm.
0: yeah so tell me about that time
1: So that was one of the most challenging times of my life, I feel. Um, Then and then maybe a few years later in my early 20s. So it was kind of the onset of what happened around 11 or 12, that I wasn't really in a place to communicate with my parents what was actually happening and why I was angry and why I was slamming the door and things like that. Um, And it snowballed into into the first years of high school where I was the only freshman on varsity volleyball so all my friends were older and I very much like immediately went into this big group of athletes and um, I felt like I didn't know who I was and I felt very lost and then that was also at the time where I really was like wow like who am I, what am I doing? I love volleyball and like, this is so wonderful that people love me for my height, for my skills and my abilities, but who am I like on the inside? And that was when I really, I call it like some of my first identity crises as a teenager of really just having no idea how to communicate how sad I was about not having a stronger relationship with my birth mother to really know more about her. In reality, who she is isn't who I am, but I just felt so much disconnect and I just didn't really feel like I knew who I was at all. Um, And so that led to me, um, I ended up cutting myself when I was around 16 years old and I really did it for attention. Um, And so it was then that I then went to a therapist and then I was diagnosed as having depression um, when really I think I was just lost and I wasn't able to communicate and so then it was reflecting out as though I was in a much darker space when really I just wasn't able to communicate what was going on and so it was also around age 17 that I then um, hurt my back playing volleyball so then all of my recruiting that was happening for me to play in college um, fell through because I wasn't really sure how my back would get better when to me it really just was like a spiral of all the things of me identifying as an athlete and that being oh I'm just a volleyball player that's it and then having that like taken away from me or that's what I viewed as viewed it back then it was really more of just like oh no like you are okay just being yourself you don't have to have an attachment to anything but it was high school was challenging which i feel like is challenging for everyone um but yeah i'm just that was a it was such a time where i was so emotional and was not able to communicate what was happening and then also didn't have other adoptees to talk to. So I had no idea that that was even what the bigger issue really was, was surrounding um, being able to actually speak through what I was feeling as an adoptee, not just as a human.
0: Yeah, interesting. And so when you went to see the therapist at 16, was that something that she was able to help you with?
1: A little bit, um, not really though we didn't really talk about adoption that much. It was more so not surface level either, but it wasn't really like, you're adopted. This is a trauma that happened to you at a young age. Like that's the root of a lot of things. Um, So we, and she was my therapist on and off for probably like 10 years, um, maybe 10ish years. And so we formed a really wonderful bond that I did feel safe in speaking about the different things. But I also feel like I wasn't ready to admit anything around my adoption. Like I was like, oh, it's fine. Like I'm different, I'm a unicorn. Like, and I wasn't really like, oh no, I have this longing that hurts. And it's the grieving that I didn't let myself do then. Um, it definitely did help me though, to see a therapist and to start speaking about how I really felt and to not deflect and to not dissociate, to actually like speak about it and be okay with how I felt. So that was definitely super helpful.
0: Yeah. I guess there's a lot of guilt maybe as a, an adopted child, because when you start saying, oh, but I really want to go and find my birth mother and I I want to go and see that whole world it's almost like you're kind of rejecting what you have even though you're not doing that but it it would feel that way is that how it would feel is that why you wouldn't speak so much about it
1: yeah so and that's a lot of the internal work I've been doing the past 10 years is really seeing that as that's how I did feel and even as a child of there were times I was somewhat of a perfectionist because I was nervous that I had to be a certain way to be loved more. And definitely shame and guilt around the exploration of the feelings around the connection with the biological family. Um, as I said, like I didn't have other adoptees in my life to really be in relation with, to be like, oh, do you feel this way too? Like what's your relationship with your birth mom? Like any of these points of references. Um, and I didn't want my parents to feel bad about anything. So it's like, I just kind of kept things hidden. And it really wasn't until my like mid to late twenties that I'm like, hey, this is how I really feel. And like, I love you. And I know that you guys did the best you could with the tools that you had. Um, But like I have felt shame I have felt guilt and a lot of a lot of it I've been able to move past in knowing that like it's just an emotion and it's not attached to me like I'm not that and like it's not like me exploring and me honoring my journey. People can interpret that in whichever way they want and this is what I tell clients all the time is like honor your journey for being your journey and like other people will begin to understand and be okay with it in whatever way you choose to go because there were so many times that I wanted to speak with my parents more around like navigating my relationship with my birth mother yet I didn't really I felt that they were too close to the situation to kind of have a more bird's eye perspective of the whole thing. And so it was like kind of teeter-tottering around like these emotions that are really big and heavy for all of us. Um, But I'm just so grateful that in the past six years, my parents and I have really formed a much better bond around it and that they are beginning to really understand more of where I'm coming from and more of just the pain that I have felt around it and the longing that I have felt around it so yeah,
0: yeah. so what were the steps that led towards you actually mating your birth mother
1: so I actually haven't met her yet. Yeah, so my, my mom and her have had a, they had a really beautiful relationship when I was growing up, which I'm so grateful that they did have. So basically, since it was an open adoption, my parents and my birth mother decided to send each other letters back and forth. So my mom would write a letter of like, Allie is going to preschool and here's like a bunch of photos of her. Um, So she would mail that to my birth mother and my birth mother would mail a letter back with some photos. So then I was able to see photos of her throughout my whole life. And it was probably around 16, which I didn't include in the previous story, but it was around 16 ish that I started emailing with my birth mother. Um, And that was completely overwhelming because I had so many questions had no idea where to start and just wanted her to like me and to love me so I would tiptoe around things um, and then I was internalizing so much of it without really expressing how I felt um, yeah so definitely that was experiencing a lot more fear of abandonment and fear of rejection around then um, but then at the same time being so excited to be emailing with her um, and then we would email sporadically um, just throughout the year of like holidays or birthdays. And it was about maybe eight years ago that I started to realize like, okay, I'm emailing with her. I really want to meet her. How do I make that happen? Like, I'm just gonna have to ask. And so she, it was about, let's see if it's 2020 it was about two years ago a year and a half ago that I emailed and she had mentioned like that she was open to meeting um, but it was about a year and a half ago that I asked her again if she was open to meeting and she said yes and she's just in Northern California and I'm in Los Angeles so I said great like here are a whole bunch of dates Um, It was the end of 2019. So I said, here are a whole bunch of dates that I'm available that I could come up there. I could come alone. I could come with my parents or my grandma also wanted to come. So I gave her all the options. And then she emailed me the next day saying that she's just not in a space to bring me into her life right now. Um, And it was tough reading that. It was definitely tough. However, I could feel her pain and I could feel her heart in it, knowing that she, I knew it didn't have to do with me. I just felt that she was still in pain around the adoption and that probably needs more healing or I'm not even sure about her circumstances, like if her husband knows or any of that. Um, So it was just one of those moments where I was like, okay, this is a beautiful lesson for me to... Still love her and just accept where we're at in our relationship and know that, like, it can grow into something better. And so, since then, she does watch my stuff on Instagram. So, that's nice that, like, I know she's still checking in on me. (laughs) Um, Even though I would really love to speak to her on the phone or to hug her in person one day. Um, But I'm just, I've surrendered that I'm not in control of that happening. And all I can do is just keep showing up as best as I can while still loving her for whatever her choice is. So I've kind of been tiptoeing because I just don't want to be rejected again. (laughs) So yeah.
0: Absolutely. Oh my gosh. I just thought that you had met your birth mother. You just seem so calm and together. And I just sort of imagine that that was part of your story and the way you speak about it that you have love for her and that you you can empathize with where she's at and all of those things it's just so beautiful the place that you're holding there but there must be pain behind that if you were to meet her what would you want to say or you know what what question would you want to ask it, what how would you want to connect with her
1: Yeah. And there is definitely a lot of pain attached to it for sure. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And it's taken a lot of work for me to really stand in this position now. It's just all, you know, honoring every day and honoring each emotion. Um, So when I do, because I'm speaking into reality, (laughs) when I do meet her um, to just hug her and just hold her and to just let her know that I love her no matter what. And and I've written this to her before of just that, it's, and I'm just getting chills thinking about it now. It's so, I am so grateful that she birthed me into this world. And if that that's the biggest gift anyone can give and for her to choose that and for her to also choose a family that is so loving and supportive. It was just the biggest gift. Um, And that I know it came with so much pain and so much suffering on all ends and that it really is the biggest gift and I wouldn't be who I am today if she wasn't a part of it and if my parents weren't a part of it. Um, But the biggest thing would really just be to hold her and to tell her I love her and to ask her what brings her joy um, there have been so many times where I'm like oh I want to know all of her hobbies I want to know da, 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 all these things and I'm like no like what brings her joy every day like what does she love the most like what's her favorite food um, kind of like what motivates her but and yeah I think it's really just it's just all about love and gratitude that's the only thing I really feel for her these days is like there is sadness that the relationship hasn't evolved to what I desire it to be. Um, there's My dad even mentioned this past holiday season, he was just like, you know, I really thought she would have been having holidays with us at times. Like I thought she would have been in our lives more. And so it's like seeing my parents also wanting that and it not being there. But then it's also like, it was heartwarming to me to see my dad want her in my life so much. Um, And so, yeah, the biggest thing, it's just like, thank you for gifting me life. The greatest Mm -hmm. life I could have ever imagined.
0: Oh, that's so beautiful. And you have so much love around you, don't you? It's very hard to understand why people do what they do and the decisions that they make, especially when it's something that we want so badly. You know, We just wanna meet this person. We just wanna hug this person but you know, you have so much love around you. And I guess something you said earlier was that you wanted to meet your birth mother because it would help you to know you better because growing up in a family that's not genetically your family, you do wonder about so many things. And I guess there's going to be questions around so many other things that and not, not like that important, I guess, but they would be very important to a child that's grown up without knowing those things. Because I guess most of us take it for granted. Oh, I know that my grandfather had those eyes and that they're my sister's eyes, or we all have those kind of knowings, I guess, that we take for granted that you wouldn't have had.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's like the little traits too, like, I'm very, very artistic. So I wonder how artistic she is, or I I make up songs every day and I just sing random songs. And so I wonder about her and also about my birth father. So I realized my attachment to learning the answers or to having more answers was also really me saying that someone else was who I am. And so I've realized, especially the past few years on my healing journey of like, you know, my birth mother is whoever she is, my parents are whoever they are, but like I define who I am. And so it's really taken me a while to shift from like, oh, I need to know these answers about my biological family to like, they're there, but like, who am I today? Who am I becoming? And that's part of me, but like that's not my whole identity. And I know that that's been a lot um, for a lot of my clients. Is oh, I need to know these answers, and focusing so much on the happiness, being in receiving answers versus really like how can I create happiness within myself? Like how can I create my own identity stronger? And that's a part of me, but not like all of me, because it's it's tough it was definitely tough as a child, you know, having friends and then having their parents pick them up. And then it's like, oh, you look so similar. And, you know, just like little things that felt like, wow, they belong there. And then for me, it was like, I always did feel like I belonged with my parents, but it was this other kind of missing pieces of like the full identity of who I am and just create who I want to
0: be yeah I love that I love that and that's a lesson for everybody you know it is because when you grow up and you hang you're hanging on to those sorts of things about who you're supposed to be because of your family it's another whole bunch of stuff that you really need to get rid of just so that you can be yourself so yeah it's a really important thing to remember tell me about some um, what happened when you were 27 because you had quite a major surgery didn't you
1: Yes, so um, so many things happened around that age. Um, so I, I refer to that time in my life as my awareness of consciousness or my spiritual awakening. So it happened through a series of a few events. The first one was uh, one of my best friends and sisters passing away suddenly from cancer at age 21. And so when that happened, I just felt like my whole world was rocked um, to the core. And I was starting to grieve it, but not like fully letting myself grieve out of fear of falling into a deep depression again. Um, And so I was somewhat grieving and then I was still going to work. And I was also in New York at the time and I I was in fashion. And so I was working like, nonstop. I basically burned myself out um, throughout those years. And nine months after Eden had passed away, um, I was actually traveling in Israel on birthright. And I suddenly got sick. And I just thought, oh, I must have eaten something funny. Like I, you know, maybe I just have an upset stomach. Um, But then it was just really horrible, upset stomach for like, two days. And then I just didn't feel well for like two weeks. And I was like, what's going on? And I went to the doctor and they were like, try these antibiotics. And I was like, okay. And then a few weeks later, one of my coworkers and one of my other best friends um, said to me, like, you look yellow. I think you, like, if you're not going to go to the doctor, like I'm going to call the doctor for you, like you look yellow. And I was like, what? And um, I've had eczema most of my life. So I was actually like itching my calves. And I was like, this is weird. Why are my calves itching? Usually it's like my arm. So then I was noticing these different things. And then, so I decided to go to the doctor again. And basically he said, he felt my, he was feeling around in my organs and he felt my liver and he said, your liver's inflamed. And I was just like, how is my liver inflamed? What does that even mean? And through then through a series of different MRIs, um, and an ultrasound, we saw that there was like a cyst in my liver. They thought it was the size of a pinky nail, and and but they were still very concerned and said, you know, like maybe it would be best for your parents to fly out and like see different doctors in New York and see, get a few different opinions. Um, but basically, what long story short, um, what ended up happening was I had a cyst the size of a softball in my liver yeah Yeah, blocking my bile ducts so five or six weeks of waiting um to be healthy enough to have surgery because my bilirubin count was like usually i think it's supposed to be like a zero to between zero and one and mine was at like a 17 And so it was, I had to just wait and wait and wait to be healthier. And then I was like, I'm 27 years old. I'm almost 27 years old and I can't have surgery because I'm not healthy. Like it was like this whole awakening for me of like, what is going on? Like it was terrifying. It was the scariest time in my life. Um, and it was then that I began to surrender to God and I began to surrender to a a higher power, um, and to spirit and that's when I called on my friend Eden who had passed away and I I called, talked to her every single day and I was just like, I have no idea why I'm going through this. I don't know what this is, but I know that if and when I get out the other side, like I'm changing my lifestyle so that I am healthier, so that I am better. Um, And so I had an eight and a half hour surgery where they removed half my liver and my gallbladder. And so when I woke up, um, I actually woke up and asked my parents, I was like, did the surgery happen? Cause it just, the anesthesia and everything, I just was completely out. Um, And, but when I got into my hospital room, I realized like the bandage was way larger than they said it was because the doctors weren't really aware of to what extent the cyst was and like which like how long the surgery would be, all these things. And so it was basically the second to worst case scenario for the surgeon because um, it was such a long surgery. and he and they basically said that afterwards um, they had no idea how the cyst formed and that I was one in 200 cases reported in the world. And so for that cyst, and like luckily it was benign. So at the time I was just so in shock. Um, and then from there onwards, I made a promise to myself like I wasn't going to burn myself out overworking. I wasn't going to live the lifestyle that I had been. Um, and I was just gonna see what else the world would bring me. Um, And it took me a little while to like fully commit to doing that and to being better and to actually feeling my emotions. And so the past few years, I've realized um, from my perspective of what happened was that I had so much anger and so much pain from my relinquishment, the trauma of my adoption and from an abusive relationship in college that like I held on to that anger and I didn't fully process it through therapy or through other healing modalities. And so it built up um, in my liver, which is where we store anger anyways. And so, yeah, and that's (laughs) because when the doctors were like, we don't know how this formed. I was like, okay and then a few years later i realized more of what it was and um yeah it was the biggest turning point for me complete shift in my lifestyle and i'm just so grateful for it it was terrifying (laughs) um but it really just woke me up to seeing like, and what can i do with my life that brings me joy instead of just doing things that i'm good at so yeah yeah
0: absolutely absolutely my goodness and do you think that being taken away from a mother at birth, do you think that that is the start of trauma?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel that um, only the person experiencing it could ever say what a trauma is to them. However, just, just the nourishment, And um, even just being held by a mother, just being like, as a baby, just held on her chest and just you hear that voice as you're being created and you're being growing. And then suddenly you don't hear that voice again and you don't feel that body again. And so for me, it took me a long time to admit to myself that that's how I really felt um, because I didn't want my birth mother to feel bad about her choice. I didn't want my parents to think, oh, could we have done something better or different? But yeah, I definitely feel that way for sure. Mm -hmm. And I feel that that was the beginning of the longing feeling but also the anger and then also the chaos. Like it was like, it's a chaotic experience to then be brought to other people who you haven't met before, you haven't had uh, any relation with. And then I always have said that like, that's when I began to find safety and chaos was, you know, when I was adopted and then, cause I've noticed that behavior pattern in other ways in my life um, of creating safety and chaos.
0: Interesting. Can you just tell me a little bit about that? How, how you think that works? Give me another example of safety and chaos.
1: Yeah, so probably one of the best examples for a while I thought it was um, perfectionism and procrastination of just, I would get into these little habits of like, I would do all of the homework and then I would write the entire essay and then I wouldn't turn it in. And so like my mom was like, you're just a perfectionist. And really what I realized, because then when I went to college and I would do other things like that, it was as though sometimes it wasn't, it was like a lack of confidence, but other times it was like just creating chaos and like such a simple thing, or it would be having a plan to study in whichever methodological way, and then deciding, oh, I'm only going to pack everything into the last week and cram for an exam. So like that's chaos. But then at times, like, and especially in my career also, I've seen that I would do that with tasks for projects or for an event I was producing. Like it was like, I could easily take the easy route, the smooth, serene, tranquil route and plan things accordingly or just throw all the things into one at the end and make it chaotic. But then that's when I also thrive. So it's like an interesting thing that happened and like now in my life there's times where I take on additional projects that I'm like why do I keep saying yes to this and it's like that same behavior pattern of like if my plate is super full then I have to create structure and safety but I don't always need to do it in that way so it's kind of like overfilling myself at times to create chaos when it's really not necessary and I've also done it in um relations with others like in some of my past partnerships i would sub like completely unconsciously do things and then later on like if the other person would get upset or like project towards me or something i would then notice it much later on of like oh i did that 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 and that that i knew if i was going to do that it was going to change things or have them feel a certain way but I wasn't consciously aware that I was doing it. And so that's been definitely a lot of my work the past two years um, is really just like being aware of like, Oh, you're adding more chaos to your plate and like, we don't need to do that. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. Actually. Tell me about the relationship that you had when you were in, was it in college? You had a relationship that was quite abusive. Why do you think you were drawn into that sort of a relationship at that point?
1: Yeah, I was so desperate to feel loved by someone else that wasn't my family or friends that I settled. And it's funny because I, I, looking back, I so clearly see all the red and yellow flags that I painted white, um, but I just so badly wanted to be loved. And it it actually started in high school too, of me um, kind of just putting up with things that I didn't need to, that I didn't deserve, but doing it because I thought that love could be painful at times. And like, maybe love is hard. And so I had these, you know, limiting beliefs around things being hard or things being challenging. And It was around a time in uh, college where several of my friends had all started dating people seriously. So then I felt like, okay, when is it my time? And this amazing man came into my life, but I wasn't even that interested in him. But then I just felt attached to him and I felt seen by him. And so I I remember even thinking about it, like, oh, I'll, I'll, play around with him for a while. Like, we'll see what happens. And I just got so sucked in to his narcissism, his alcoholism. Um, And it, for me, at the time, I was so scared to let go. um, Because I had also realized that like, even in toxic relationships in the past, I didn't end them and it wasn't until even now that like I'm hesitant with ending relationships or pulling away from relationships um, because I don't want to be that person that like abandoned someone else when really what I'm do I was doing is I was abandoning myself so like in the in the toxic relationship with him I really kept trying to help him get better without consciously knowing that that's what I was doing I was like oh he has an issue with alcohol that's okay I can help fix him and I can help whatever when really it was me not dealing with how I was feeling around my adoption from like high school on I just wasn't dealing with it it was also me just self-sabotaging. And so it was like this spiral that he was in that I then joined the spiral. And then it just ended up, it started with um, emotional abuse and then it just increased from there. And um, luckily the physical abuse wasn't that much. Um, It was just a few instances, but it was overall three and a half years of being in a toxic spiral with someone um, who was suffering from a disease that he wasn't getting help and I wasn't helping myself by pulling away and getting out of it. So it was a very dark time in my life that after, after that happened um, was when I really had a moment with myself where I was extremely, extremely depressed. Because I was so angry at myself for letting it happen and for like playing a role in something that caused me harm and pain, and so from that, that's when I really was—that was my rock bottom when I did decide to leave that relationship, and that was I was about 22, and um, that's when I was so depressed that I realized, like, oh this is what leads to suicide and like I had a moment where it's like I don't want to leave this earth but I don't want to keep suffering and so in that moment I really saw I was like oh this is it's one path or another and I was just like too many parts of life to you know to not be here so for me that was like a huge turning point of deciding like how to make myself happy And how to be okay with my choices and it's taken me a long time (laughs) but it was it was then that it was like starting to shift and lift me and that's when i also met my best friend eden who then passed away right before i had surgery but it was meeting her and her seeing me in a way i didn't see myself yet that i really saw myself through her eyes first and it's like i saw who i desired to be and through her complete unconditional love of just being friends extremely quickly, I saw how relationships could be and I saw how friendships could be. And for me, that was like, it was like so painful, but then the biggest gift was meeting her while I was in the pain. And she really just came into my life like a sunflower, just like beaming of light and, yeah, but she had also been suffering cancer for years. And but she chose love and she chose happiness every day, no matter how much pain she was in. And so being in a relationship with her completely shifted my life. So, yeah. yeah,
0: how amazing to have met Eden. She sounds like an absolutely beautiful human and changed the way you thought about yourself. And so, do you give yourself unconditional love now?
1: Yes, it took me um, took me a while to do it, um, to really feel it and embody it every day. It took me years, um, but Eden was the turning point. So it was almost 11, 11 years ago that I met her and it was through her love that I learned what love really was. Um, you know, through my family We all say it's unconditional love, but it has been conditional at times. Um, And when I met Eden, it was just like, oh, this is what deep love is. Love for someone just being there breathing next to you, regardless of who they are or how they show up. They're just, they're alive and I love them. And I'm just so grateful for the lessons she's brought me. Even since she's passed, she's brought me so many beautiful lessons. And just to really truly embody love. And for me, what was the most challenging around unconditionally loving myself was accepting who I was when I was at my worst and being okay with it. And, you know, just accepting it and knowing that that's just the best that I knew how to be then and taking it, taking the medicine from it and really loving myself for who I was then because those were the times where I really didn't like or love myself at all and that's when I was suffering the most and even in my meditations now there's times that I go back um, and I re-embody that version of me and love myself more so that I can keep healing those parts of me because it was just it was ugly (laughs) it was not yeah, I was just like such a different person then. But unconditional love of self, really for me, it started with compassion and acceptance and patience is what got me to fully be embodying it now. And I realized I unconditionally loved someone I dated after that last, the abusive relationship. I realized I unconditionally loved him And that's when I was like, almost fully unconditionally loving myself. And I was like, how can I unconditionally love him and not me? And so it was like kind of those last little moments of like, how am am I putting him on a pedestal? Like, what am I doing? That is then allowing me for that. But, and that was another toxic entanglement um, which actually really led to me loving myself. So yeah, I always say that like the abusive relationship was me hitting rock bottom, and me being introduced to Eden and learning love, and then it was really the the toxic entanglement um, a few years ago that showed me that I could unconditionally love someone who was also causing harm while I myself was choosing harm, and then how could I so that I am not investing in toxicity, Um, so that's, yeah, it's beautiful.
0: Yeah, that's an that's a beautiful journey. Tell me, how do you practically every day, how do you ensure that you're giving yourself unconditional love every day?
1: So it all starts um, with my rising ritual, my morning practice. So when I wake up every day, I hold myself, like I just hug myself or even hold myself in whichever way and just say like, I love you. And so it's like, coming back consciously into this world, especially in the last year has been challenging at times of like, do I wanna be living in this reality? Um, and so I always just hug myself and say, I love you. And then I say my prayers and I um, do it like, I do different self-care practices. Um, so one of them is like an Abhyanga, which is an Ayurvedic oil massage. Um, and then I do yoga and I meditate. And I've realized that I was doing this, I've been doing this for probably like eight to 10 years. Um, Ever since I really came out of that dark depression is that I would just look in the mirror and like either either in my mind or say out loud, I love you. And I started to do it when I didn't like myself and when I didn't love myself. And then it took, I don't know, probably took like a year or so for me to actually really start loving myself more. And then now I just do it all the time. And also it's just the awareness of any old pattern or old limiting belief that I have to be a certain way to be loved or that I have to be a certain way to love myself. There's been definitely a big growth for me around my body and like what shape or size my body is in given any time of the month or if it's you know, if I gain a few pounds, if I lose a few pounds, whatever it is, and really just loving myself for existing, and loving myself when I make poor choices too, and being okay with that, and knowing like, it's just life, there is no perfection, it's just the practice of self-love, that's what's important, and the practice of self-love is then reflected and rippled out into the world, and into all of our relations, and So yeah, and then I also check in with myself throughout the day. Um, It tends to be like every hour or so, depending on like what tasks or projects I'm doing. Uh, But always just, it's, I kind of call it like a mental health check-in. But it's also like, am I doing things to love myself more? And am I doing things out of love? Um, Am I coming from love or am I coming from fear? And so it kind of just gives me those moments to like, reshape what I'm doing or to just pause and like do some yoga or go on a run and like realign myself um, to come from more love.
0: Wow I love all of those things I just felt myself taking this big Ah, that was that sounds so good I'm gonna have to uh, take up some of those things myself (laughs) sounds really awesome. So tell me on your healing journey Are there any books that you think have really helped you anything that really stands out that's really helped you to get over certain blocks or hurdles?
1: Yeah so one of the biggest ones is The Untethered Soul that really supported me in seeing the bigger picture of life and understanding or understanding that I'm not my thoughts because so much of my life I was just spent in my own head and just like in these little spirals of like whatever it might be of like even if it was like oh like how does someone else think of me or like just whatever spiral it was it was that book really shifted a lot for me and I actually read this other book in my late 20s it would have helped to read earlier um, The Defining Decade. I also feel like anyone could read it at any time, and there's still beautiful learnings from it. Um, That really helped me in understanding more of like, what do I actually want in life? And from there, I was able to then navigate more of like, okay, what do I really love? Like, what brings me joy? Um, So definitely those two books. And then I want to say Spirit Hacking by Shaman Durek has also been a really helpful one. Oh, there are so many books that I want to share. Um, But Spirit Hacking is also one that really bridges more of spirituality into practicality from a shamanic standpoint that I feel like is really open but also explains a lot of what's going on, especially right now in our our, our country, in the whole world um, with this like blackout that we're all facing and we're all really being gifted time to look more internally at ourselves. Um, So spirit hacking is one I'd definitely suggest around this time. And primal wound um, is about adoption. So that really helped me and also was very activating. It was one of those books that's quite dense. Um, The woman who wrote it is an adoptive mother. So it was nice reading about all the data and research that she's done. So I have a few other books that I've also been looking into that are written by adoptees. Um, But I would definitely say that those are probably like my top four, at least that are coming to mind right now. There have just been so many books that have really helped. Also, anything by um, Titnot On or Thay. uh, His teachings are just remarkable. I've done a ton of... uh, I've been studying Buddhism on and off since I was 11 years old. So I have a whole bunch of those types of books that I'm... Honestly, there's so many of those. That sounds awesome. So you now have your
0: own coaching business called Adopt Yourself Coaching. You have a book coming out soon and other things happening. So tell us all about what people should come to you for.
1: Yeah, so I'm so excited about this. Um, What people should come to me for. How to learn to love yourself more is like my bigger umbrella picture. Adopting yourself. So I've adopted myself and it took me... I really only started to consciously do it in my late 20s and for me adopting yourself is taking responsibility for who you've been who you are and who you are becoming and I have programs specifically for adoptees and I'm also branching out to offer them to non-adoptees as well and it's all about teachings and practices of how to, ex- to rediscover who you really are, because a lot of the times we get caught up in societal programming and conditioning or parental or whatever it may be, any type of programming and conditioning that takes us away from who we are at our core. And so through these different processes that I walk people through, we unravel to the true self, rediscover who you really are, accept who you are and how you feel and then learn to prioritize and love the person you have been, you are, and that you are becoming. Um, And so it was basically taken the past 32 and a half years of my life and looked at all of the lessons and learnings from it and how I evolved and how, especially in the past eight years, what I've been doing on this healing path of navigating through different coaches different mentors different healing modalities and what has helped in shifting me to see who i was running away from and what i was running away from and how to actually like it, heal it and then embody what i desire and so on through these different programs that i'm offering i basically just guide people through their journey of laying the foundation for a journey of introspection, and then supporting them along the way um, through various modalities. So some of them are meditation, Reiki, coaching, mentoring, whatever it may be. But it's really the first focus that I walk people through is their relationship with themselves. And then from there, it's okay, what are your desired relationships with other people or with other things like a lot of it comes back to like our relationships with food for some of my clients and so then shifting of like okay what are communication styles that are helpful that you can express how you feel while also still being considerate of the person you're speaking to and creating a synergistic relationship with them um, to then grow into a more healthy relationship Um, and then the third layer is or taking responsibility as a steward of the earth um so whether that's planting more having your own garden whatever it may be or adopting yourself through conscious relational lifestyle practices is what it really is Is like the bigger picture and so it's like these different layers but what it all comes down to is really how to embody love how to come back to love for ourselves, for our lives, for others, for our experiences. And I always joke, I'm like, my head is shaped like a heart <laughs> uh-huh. so, uh, with my widow's peak. Um, so I was like, I was born to just share love. And so, yeah, it, what it comes down to the most is learning to love ourselves more so that we can love others more. And what I'm committed to is really finding any sort of disharmony within myself so that I can harmonize it because I feel that we must create harmony within ourselves in order for us to live harmoniously together
0: so. Yeah. All so beautiful I just love it and the whole thing is just just love so it's just absolutely beautiful I love it tell me where we can find you on Instagram or how can we look you up
1: yes so on Instagram it's a L I dot L E I G H dot J A M as in Mary, E S O N as in Nancy. Um, and then com is my website, and I'll be building out on Mighty Networks and probably Telegram soon as well.
0: All those links I'll put below in the show notes for the podcast so that people can find you easily. Ali, it's been an absolute honor to hear your story today, and you're so Still so young and yet so wise. You've learned so much in your lifetime and you're already here ready to share all the lessons. And so much of it is heartbreaking, but you know, this is why we go through it, isn't it? So that we can serve the world and your mission just to spread love is just the best mission, I think, ever. So good luck with everything. And thank you so much for chatting to me today.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you this
0: is wonderful. Thank you so much for being here. Please check the show notes for all the links related to this podcast including book recommendations. If you have a story to share, questions about this episode or want to connect in any way, I would love to chat. Please come and find me on Instagram at my big love project and please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review. Can you think of one person whose life might change a tiny bit in a positive way by hearing this episode? Please go ahead and share it with someone you know needs to hear it. These stories are so important. You are such an incredible soul because you are you. You are unique. Your journey is unique and you can absolutely change the world with your story. Your time is precious and I so appreciate you being here. Thank you for joining me. I'll catch you next week.